Onyx Hunt is our go-to solution for anything mapping related, whether we're at the house or in the field, whether we're using the tracking feature in order to kind of figure out exactly where we're going in and out of the woods, to also implementing the new cell camera feature where you can actually link your different cell cameras that you may have from different brands and be able to get all those photos sent directly through the Onyx app where you can actually see them on your maps and be able to go through all your photos right there in one place. You can use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout and save 20% on your Onyx Onyx membership. Onyx has been extremely helpful for us the last six years, and I'm sure it'll be helpful for you. So know where you stand with Onyx. I'm sure by now y'all have heard about the Vortex VIP warranty. It is a unlimited, unconditional lifetime warranty. Absolutely the best warranty in the business. So if you drop your binos out of a tree stand, if you run them over with your truck, whatever happens, you can send it into Vortex and they'll fix or replace it. That gives me peace of mind knowing that Vortex stands behind their products. So hey, head on over to Midway USA and use the promo code SOUTHERN to get a discount on any Vortex optics you order through Midway USA. If you use that code, you get a discount and it helps out the show. So head on over to MidwayUSA.com and check out some Vortex optics. Meadow Creek Mounts is your go-to mounting option for red dots on your turkey shotgun. And one of my favorite features about this mount is you don't have to drill and tap your shotgun in order to mount a red dot onto your shotgun. I personally have used this mount the last two seasons and it's worked extremely well for me. One thing I personally like about it is because it's so low onto the barrel when it mounts to the rib of your shotgun, it allows for a very natural head positioning when shouldering your gun. Also an advantage of using a red dot compared to maybe just a traditional bead on your shotgun is you get a much more clear view of the turkey and you're able to kind of see what else is around there and making sure you're perfectly on that bird. Now if you're interested in giving Meadow Creek Mounts a try you can go over to the website meadowcreekmounts.com and use the code southern at checkout to be able to save 10% on your order. Welcome back, everybody, to another outro for the Southern Outdoorsman podcast. Today, we uh, got a special guest of honor on the outro, Mr. Paul Putera. Paul, how are you? Oh, pretty good. How you doing? Uh, dude, I'm doing great. Jacob, how are you doing over there, doing, Mr. Gingerbow Hunter? Doing well. Just been on the road all day, but yeah, good to be here with everybody. I mean, kind of fun. It's been, it's been mm-hmm. a fun couple weeks, Paul. Let's uh, part one, part two series we just did, uh, kind of with you and Shane Parker. Has been quite interesting, and some of the feedback's been pretty fascinating, especially from the second episode that just came out on Monday, which kind of started hot and heavy right at the beginning, other than Andrew's little intro for it. <laughs> you know, you know, started off right in the beginning talking about uh, you know, dew point, which uh, I thought was a very fascinating perspective on you know possibly something that you know these bucks are kind of using to their advantage uh, for sending conditions and kind of where mm-hmm. elevation wise that might be playing a factor, but. Uh, Paul, I mean, dude, first off, what kind of feedback have you been getting from, you know, some people kind of messaging you about the episodes and uh, and kind of some of that take, especially on this part two series? Well, I'm getting all sorts of people calling me and asking me questions about it and getting all, all excited. They want to know all this stuff. So I'm looking forward to answering their questions as they come in. Yeah, absolutely. Especially kind of looking at you know, doing a, a, a third episode uh, that mm-hmm. we'll do a little bit later on. I think in a, Andrew originally said in the main episode, it'll be sometime late this summer, but I think might I have to do it a little earlier. Yeah, I had to be a little bit earlier, especially talking about some of the, the, the actual movement uh, and travel kind of part of the study that Shane had done and kind of seeing how those bucks and does and everything else were kind of traveling through those areas. Uh, Cause I find it pretty interesting because he actually mentions it. I forgot about this until I went back and listened to uh, Monday's episode, which was part two, 
Shane actually talks about out of the 170 cameras, I think it's like 106 or 107 of them were on exclusive travel quarters. They weren't in those hubs. And, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm like, I'm very interested in, in diving into that data and kind of seeing what he found there based off that movie and compared to like what you've been seeing kind of up in the areas that you've been hunting. And it's like also looking at it from the perspective of, you know, a hunter, what was, what's been something maybe, maybe not something eye opening, but what was some of those things that maybe Shane had kind of brought up, especially in some of our text threads that maybe some of these stuff that we've talked about in this first two episodes uh, that kind of confirmed some things that you've been seeing, especially up in the, you know, kind of East coast where you're at talking about Jersey and Pennsylvania and that kind of, kind of up that, you know, Northeast side of the uh, United States. Well, it's, it's, it's really fascinating how similar everything really is. It's, it's completely like different trains and stuff like that, but it's still the same. It's the same like habitat, like for, um, for the deer to, to be uh, seeking out and stuff. So it's, it's, it's really interesting in that point, you know? Yeah. One, one cool thing I was listening to part two on my way home from work today and I was uh, listening to y'all talk about hubs and, and how the bucks are hanging out between hubs. And I think I was asking some questions on there about uh, bucks like bouncing from hub to hub or they'll use the hubs to kind of travel and check areas out. And uh, it brought to mind our episode with Tony Myers where he was talking about, and uh, other guys too, but he's just the first one that pops in my head, talking about how you have those bucks who are kind of like hanging out on the edge of where all the other deer are hanging out at. And um, just like gets my wheels spinning on some of these new areas that me and Jacob are going to hunt this fall. Uh, And how, and Paul actually where you map scouted for me a little bit and you pointed out that area with all those hubs down that long ridge. It got me kind of thinking about that area and re-looking at it and being like, okay, based on what I know about how I've hunted in areas like this before, I think the does are going to be like right here. So now it's mm-hmm. now it's like I can look at that area and be like, okay, the does, this should be where the does are at. Like basically that cutover that you looked at down there. They're going to be somewhere around there. And then the bucks should be up above them. Yep, I'm looking at that whole ridge system going through there and everything up high i'm like i'm like that that just looks like a good place you know where the does I, I i typically see a lot of does up higher in the elevations and you wouldn't believe how many times you actually find the bigger bucks down a little ways you know they they get they it's not it's even like the upper one third level is almost even like that portion is a lot of does i find you know there and on the points and stuff and then you get these big bucks and they kind of i i it seems like they're down along those steep benches and that steep stuff where nobody's walking. Yeah. You know, and like, if you could, if you could find like skitter trails or something cutting along that kind of stuff, that's awesome place. You know, 10, 10 foot wide path, not even like sometimes I think I, I showed you guys some photos of some of the buck trails that I'm following on these hills. And it literally looks like somebody just went down with like a, like a little trowel and just cut a, cut a line down the side of the hill mm-hmm. and just like just like a little flat spot wide enough for the deer to walk from all the years of them going across on those hills yeah i think i think nobody goes in those spots too because i mean you need to have one leg shorter and the other to walk on it but, well and you bring that up about the bucks being lower when me and jacob scouted that general area i think i might have sent you the track that we did mm-hmm. uh, but the the big impressive buck bed that we found he was he was on the bottom half of that hill 
He wasn't mm-hmm. he wasn't top third or near the top or anything like that. He was below the halfway point or very close yep. to it. So and he was he was lower than a lot of the more intense sign we found. He was below all that stuff in that yep. bed. So that's and interesting. Then it's like he goes goes up to it in the evening or something. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if they're going up. Or in that case, talking about from the scouting trip that Andrew's talking about, that one buck bed, he was actually better right between two. Like he had like a heavy sign down below him in another hub farther down below. Mm-hmm. And he had signed on top of the ridge too. So he's better like smack dab in the middle of it. So yep. that that is kind of interesting again, for, you know, perspective of like, you know, Buck could go uphill, downhill, whatever from that one bed, but he's not like necessarily bedded right off the top of that ridge. It's again, mm-hmm. you know, 150 yards down the side of that ridge, which mm-hmm. is like a halfway point. It's a huge ridge. Uh, but, uh, no, that, that's super interesting. Like, just the hub use, and like you're saying, you know, how these bucks are kind of using these areas, but also how the does are using them. And one thing which we haven't talked, we haven't talked about on the podcast, we talked about very little in the second episode, even though the name was like talking about like doe groups. We really didn't get like the needy gritty on part of the doe groups and like what Shane's seen and also Paul, kind of what you've seen too, going back mm-hmm. to this, this text thread about, you know, so many different doe groups and timing when they're coming into heat. And those small little windows of time, yeah, that 36-hour window of time, 48-hour window of time of when, you know, these three or four does are coming into heat and then shifting mm-hmm. over a quarter mile to the next doe group and just, you know, three, four hundred yards to the next doe group. And you can almost like, chi- like figure out exactly when those bucks are showing up at that specific time, which I hate <laughs> foreshadowing some of these episodes that we've re- already recorded, but we recorded a freaking banger last night. Uh, yeah, we did. And, uh, yeah, we and, did. and that episode last night, that's what some of those guys are talking about. Just a couple different guys we had on the same time in person up in North Alabama. And they were mentioning that like, Hey, there's just like some of these specific bucks are like showing up. You know, they have a couple he- uh, years of uh camera data on a couple deer. It's like, there's like a window of time within two, three days. This buck is showing up in this one spot. And, mm-hmm. cl- and like clearly, and it's and during the rut. About that. It's clearly during the rut that, you know, that doe group, wherever that buck is coming to, uh, you know, check out, those does are coming in the heat in and around that little one time, and that's when he's there, and then he's gone. Yep. If you know that's happening, don't shoot that doe. Yeah. <laughs> Which, <laughs> that goes back. I, we can mention this, I guess. Uh, talk about, like, don't shoot that doe. Uh, we were talking about on that same episode, but I can mention it here. Our, one of our past guests, Wes Moe, talked about. Old Susie. Yeah, one of his episodes. <laughs> I don't know what he called her. I but, think it was Old Susie. It, it was something like that. Anyways, he named this doe, and she had, like, a white splotch somewhere on her, so she's pretty identifiable. <laughs> And I think he said he's killed like three or four bucks off the back of her, like following her during the rut during a very mm-hmm. short window of time, like over like the matter of like three or four years or two, yeah. three years, whatever. And then of course she died of old age or yeah. you know, killed whatever. But uh, and then uh, I'll say this: Perry, Michael Perry, who we had on too, he was saying the same thing. Like he's had that happen with a couple of does um, as well. Like you know, very consistently killing a buck behind mm-hmm. one of those does during the right window of time. And what I mean is like. You can't say like the ruts, like saying like in your area uh, where you're at, Paul. I mean, I know you see rutting activity as early as like mid to late October, but you know, kind of run through November. We're talking about like a window of days, like a two, three day window of time. But hey, this one specific doe is going to be coming in the heat within this window of time based off trail cameras and everything else. And that's when you go in there and hunt and, and kill that deer or mm-hmm. kill it a mm-hmm. buck off her. And, and it makes sense because when you think about it, you know, if you have this buck on camera and he shows up at this scraper in this hub, Within two or three days, two years in a row, when you think about it, yep. you're like, okay, he's a he's a wild animal. He doesn't have a calendar. You know, he's not that smart where he's keeping track of days. There's like a biological clock in that doe, and that's what's making him come there. So if you shoot the doe, 
then there's no cue for him to go in there because he's probably just following yeah. her into that spot. So yeah, and in the summertime, the does will do a lot on the scrapes. Like I'll, I'll find a lot of does on like primary scrapes in the summertime. Sometimes you, that's all you get. Sometimes for like from like June through like August, all you'll have is does coming into these scrapes. Every like every day they'll come in and be hitting the scrape and marking it and hitting the licking branch and stuff. And then all of a sudden, like you get to that time period in August, September, where you get these bucks that get up and do excursions, right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden that buck will just all of a sudden boom, one night, middle of the night, he'll be on that scrape. And then he'll maybe come back like once or twice in a couple day period, and then he's gone. And all of a sudden, that deer shows back up during the rut. Mm. Yeah, and it's something I've seen quite a few times. It's pretty interesting to see that happen. Mm-hmm. But they—they—it's like they know what's going on. They—they they can just—they're picking up pheromones or something, and it's like they—you know—they're—they're they're a lot smarter than we think. We think I sometimes. Then they're also, uh, it, and it would make sense that they're way more keened in on what's happening to those local doe groups and when is the mm-hmm. right time to go in. Because, I mean, I, I think it was on the first episode, Paul, you had mentioned, was we were really diving into the, talking about like the buck hub specifically. And like sometimes it seems like those bucks are just making a scrape there just because they're catching wind of does maybe bedded up above them. But the does aren't necessarily coming there. It's just more like an instant, like, oh, I smell does. You know, it's that time mm-hmm. of the year I'm laying a scrape down. And it's one of those scrapes that maybe you're not going to kill a deer in and around it, but that buck's traveling through there and he's kind of automatically laying some sign down because he can smell those does up above him before they yeah, drop off the ridge. Yeah, gets fired up. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. And I guess that's one thing with this episode uh, that I guess is worth bringing up is the idea of like, you know, when Shane was talking about some of these primary scrapes, especially in like the first episode, it's not necessarily... Like these hubs aren't where those primary scrapes were at. And I've had somebody message me about that, like getting confused on like when he was talking about primary scrapes, they were like completely outside the hub. Like they were closer to the, the, the doe bedding. They were like more on like, you know, one of those hillsides where you get a little flats, but that's where the primary scrapes mm-hmm. at. But like where those hubs are at, you have scrapes there, but it's more so like a buck's just coming through, laying some sign down, but you're not really ever having does checking those scrapes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a lot more faint. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the buck, he just, he, it's going to be like an advantage point. So like a lot of times, like you'll have like a primary scrape up on top in a saddle or something, you know, and then the hub will be kind of down below on like a little bench or something below the saddle. So that buck is going to, he's going to come off his bed and he's going to come below that saddle and he's going to take in that air coming down. And once he gets that, he's going to get that urge to start making a little sign. You, you'll find like, maybe like a, a, a little tree just rubbed a little bit or just he would start pawing and making a little scrape or something. But it's like almost like he's just kind of, it's like he's just making a little sign on his walking path, but it's not like he's he's going to a destination to, you know, to do it. And that was you know? one thing we brought and you just brought was like the rub <laughs> aspect and like how rubs like aren't, necessi- not, aren't necessarily something to 100% go off of, but something to kind of confirm whether you're in one of those hubs because it seems like you're going to find some of those rubs leading into those hubs and then exiting those hubs. You may find some in the hubs, but you'll find them on a lot of the trails going to that individual hub itself. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's one way, because I, I feel like with this outro is kind of maybe breaking it back down to 
to the listener's perspective of like simplifying like how to confirm whether or not you actually find one of those hubs and like some of those characteristics on the, from the outside looking in on like what confirms like this is you know what we're talking about is you know being a buck hub mm-hmm. um, so it seems like you know find those rubs going to that hub to that that center of activity where those trails are coming together and also leaving that area is also you know a, a confirming factor along with finding some of those faint scrapes there what are some of those other features uh paul that maybe we can kind of you know just touch on as like confirming factors that hey you know this is you know one of these buck hubs that we've been talking about the last two episodes well one one thing you could kind of think about when you're looking for this if you if you're familiar with like predator trails right like you got coyotes and bear bear paths and stuff like that a lot of times, you know, the, a, a predatory animal is going to have like a certain pathway he's going to take. You'll see where that that sign is, and he's walking that so he can pick up on stuff. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. he's he's using that. He's like he's hunting on that trail, you know. And a buck is going to be doing something very similar to that in a lot of a lot of situations because he's hunting for does and he's using his nose to figure stuff out. You know, so he's going to put himself in places where he's going to be able to do that. So a lot of times, if you look kind of like along places where you would expect to find, you, you'll find like coyote droppings and stuff in those areas sometimes, or some bear scat or something. You'll see some tracks where the bears walk through, where they got the little little spots where their feet cut through in the, the soft soil that like over time, because they always walk in the same footprints every time they go through an area you'll kind of start seeing little signs of that bear sign in there too. And like this time of year, the bears are mating like, and you can actually find the bear sign like where the bears are rutting. And a lot of times the same places those bears are making rubbing posts and stuff like that. It's the same places you're finding these, these bucks coming through. Oh, that's super interesting. So like in your area of the, the country kind of coming from that, you know, Jersey, Pennsylvania area where you have, you know, very high bear density. You're almost, you're seeing the bears do the, use the areas exactly the same as you're seeing these bucks, mm-hmm. especially come like this time of the year when they're running. Yep. That's interesting. Yep. Man, that might have something to do with why you see so many dang bears. <laughs> <laughs> that and there's just a million of them. Yeah. Yeah, oh, man. Gosh. It's not, not get on that rat hole quite yet. I get fired up for some bears. But yeah. Hold yeah. on, man. Well, I guess not to get too sidetracked and not to get too crazy on this, but Paul, y- y'all don't have a bear season right now in Jersey, right? Nope. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. it's bad. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I hunted almost every day last year, and I think almost every day I saw a bear. Mm. God, man put it that way well that, the second they open it up give me a call yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man oh my they're gosh everywhere well so well, they're walking down city streets and sidewalks and everything now you know yeah one thing it's ridiculous one thing i really got from this episode was just scouting these hubs out and really getting to know it and and slowing down and scouting that area and paul going back to that area that you and that me and you were talking about that you pointed out, it's like a long ridge to kind of explain it for the listeners. It's like a big, tall, long ridge. And then you go down mm-hmm. and there's all, it's almost like a bench, but it's not, it's huge. It's like a big spot where it kind of flattens out and there's little hubs that run down that, yep. like little thermal hub looking things. And then yep. those drain down a little bit further. And then you get into flat, some flat land. There's like some cutovers down there, a couple cattle pastures and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that area i'm planning on making you know i got the whole summer to do it i'm going to try to make at least three good trips in there where i'm going to go and hit each one of those hubs and just 
start and just really look and dedicate yep. a whole day to that rather than go There's in and try to yeah and put cameras out rather than take a day and walk the whole thing you know zigzagging back and forth and covering like eight miles you know just hit that one spot and just really get the lay of the land in that exact spot yeah yeah and, and paul that was something yeah i'm glad you brought that up andrew that's something about you and shane both brought was that idea of like when you're scouting for you know these hubs and when you find that activity you find that sign you find that bed in and around close to one of these hubs to be very methodical in how you're breaking that down and not just kind of like not have the mindset which we talked about recently and we talked about on the episode yep. last night not having the mindset of like oh i have a destination to get to this sign's cool but i'm still going to this other spot instead of having that but go out there like hey if you find that hub or what you suspect to be a hub, start being very methodical, those circular kind of scouting pattern around it and, and try to really break it down because um, just while you're there, you could probably be a lot more effective on breaking stuff down mm-hmm. versus coming back in with another trip to kind of recap on what you had just looked at, you know, a few days prior or a week prior or whenever. So I, I think that's something that we can kind of, you know, explain as well on, on like the scouting aspect is uh, mm-hmm. the idea of, how to go about breaking this stuff down. Cause we never really touched on that on the actual episode um, on like, you know, you just meant, I just know you specifically. And then Shane was shaking his head. Like, yeah, like agreeing with you. Like once you find those areas and you said it specifically, like when you found that, when we found that bed on the side of that Ridge, that's when you would have stopped. Hey, I'm spending all day here and I'm looking at this. Can you talk a little bit more about just like, if you're in one of these areas in one of these hubs, like how you would go about kind of slowing down and being very methodical and really kind of getting a, very good understanding of the lay of the land and how those deer are using that general area. Yeah. When, once I find a, a something like that with like a big, big primary sign, you know, you find a big signpost rub or a big scrape or something, you know, I, I will just take and go from that point and just fan out and I'll start hitting every, I'll walk every trail for a quarter, quarter to a half a mile from that spot and walk those trails return and do it again and i'll kind of go through and that's that's actually it's kind of a lot of it is because like i found over i think it's um, 24 sheds this year in the mountains you know and that's that's the reason why i'm finding all these sheds too because i get into a spot where i'm like this is a big there's a, there's a big buck living around here mm-hmm. you know and I'm, I'm i'm like practically grid searching the place you know and i just stay right where i feel like that deer is going to be able to feel comfortable and lift and I, I, i'm gonna learn every square inch of that place like you you gotta you gotta look at everything like you can't you can't just go oh maybe i don't really feel like walking up 20 yards and checking that little hill like you gotta go up there and check it yeah it's like you know? it's leaving nothing unturned and 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 i guess also going in with the mindset like you're not gonna leave anything to question like you're gonna know everything mm-hmm. around that area within a quarter mile or, or a half mile yep and if i if i'm not confident in the spot I'm going to come back the following day and start right there and keep going. Mm-hmm. Start with a fresh, fresh mind. You know, you get worn out or something. You start to get tired. Take a break. I mean, you could just, you're sitting right there, just taking, sit there and think like, you know what I mean? And just kind of think about really like, how is it all this working? You know, and at the whole time I'm doing this, cause like when I, when I scout, I, I do a lot of this post-season when i when i'm looking for these spots because i can really pick up all the sign when everything is really fresh you know so i i like to do it immediately after the season or if i'm tagged out i'll start doing it then 
Now, now this won't be super applicable necessarily to some of our listeners in the deep south, but like more of our area or listeners that are I call it the mid south and, and north. Uh, how much does and I don't want to make the whole episode about this, but I'm just curious. You're talking about like po- doing a lot of se- postseason scouting. Do you like to do that based off like snow conditions? Like if you have a lot of snow on the ground, would you wait until after there's like some of that snow's melted off, or will you still go out there? If there's eight ten inches or more of snow on the ground. With with snow, I'll do it differently. Like with snow, I can get in there and I can see the deer tracks and the snow and stuff. So I'll just kind of like breeze through it and just kind of get a general feel of how everything is working. Mm-hmm. But you can't see anything under the snow. So like I'll just kind of be like, okay, the deer, this is where the deer really like to walk through here and stuff. And I'll just kind of take notes on that, you know, and then I'll come back and walk it when it's bare ground. Okay, yeah. that makes that makes more sense. So really, but a lot of the stuff we were talking about, the snow just makes it way easier. Yeah, and know? I was gonna say, uh, you know, we've been like when I was in uh, Iowa last year, this past season, and that was the first time I've ever hunted like in the snow, and just the mm-hmm. amount of sign you found, dude, it was like this is amazing. And it's kind of funny because I've always heard Pike, um, Pike's always talked about Michael Pike's always talked about like he's always kind of jealous of some of these guys that live in areas that get snow regularly throughout the season. Because you can learn so much in a short window of time based off when snow's on the ground, mm-hmm. uh, compared to areas like where we're at, where like you just don't get snow, or if you do get snow, it lasts for eight hours and it completely melts away. Um, yeah, down here this far south. Um, but that's one yeah. thing it I makes know, it, It's a challenge. Yeah, I, I was, definitely a challenge. Yeah, and the deer definitely don't. At least my my uh, at least per what I've seen, deer don't like it when it snows down here. They're yeah, like, they brought, I bet they locked right down. They're oh like, yeah. They're, they're laying down until it melts off and then they'll move afterwards. It seems like, but mm-hmm. like, yeah, the amount of people I, I, I know very few people's ever shot deer in the snow, especially after it stopped snowing, like at the very beginning, like right, right when it mm-hmm. starts snowing. Yeah. I've heard, I know some guys has killed deer, but if it's like been snowing for like three, four hours, like, yeah, those deer aren't going anywhere. Yeah, That's, that's the same thing up here too, because I'm not around agriculture. Like, like they say, like, like out Midwest and stuff, the deer, people are like, oh, you got to hunt that, you got to hunt that food source when it gets bad weather and cold and stuff. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen up here. Like we get the bad weather and it just shuts the deer off because instead of trying to go and find food to survive, they decide they're going to tough it out and not move so they don't burn calories. Mm -hmm. You know, so when you get bad weather coming in up here in the wintertime, a lot of times it just shuts the deer right off. And I actually, I'll, I'll see more deer on nice days, late season, than I do on bad weather days. That's interesting. Uh, that, that's super interesting. And again, not to get too sidetracked on that, but that, that is an interesting perspective because, again, you're far enough kind of to the east. And like you said, you're in an area that's like not dominated by agriculture. It's like completely mm-hmm. opposite. Like when I was in Iowa, that was like everybody was saying, like, dude, you got to be on a cut cornfield. Like find cut or standing corn. Yeah. Like if you get that because we had a massive snowstorm come through and it was like negative I don't know negative fourteen negative fifteen something like that and uh, you know the deer were like yeah they were feeding to survive yeah. they'll move they'll go miles for it but it, it, it also have to move miles it, it makes sense though because it's you know high carbohydrates high calorie food compared to, like when mm-hmm. you're in the mountains and you're feeding on like browse and you know any acorns yeah. that are left yeah. mean, fern bulbs yeah there you go like man that that doesn't sound nearly as tasty as some you know some cut corn or standing corn yeah. or even beans for that matter um but kind of getting back to this on the scouting aspect like being very methodical and breaking that stuff down when you find some of these you know these different hubs i find this being very applicable especially this outro being very applicable for this summer for some of these listeners that are kind of hearing this episode and hearing some other episodes that are going to be coming out very soon in the next three four weeks 
Mm-hmm. That's, I think, going to get a lot more people more fired up to go scout you know, even in the summertime. Because I know a lot of these guys, like you and other guys that we've interviewed and will be interviewing, do a lot of postseason scouting, but you can still find some of the stuff in, in the summertime. It's just that much more difficult mm-hmm. with all the greenery. Like the sign's yeah. not and as applicable. If it's if it's hard to if it's really hard to find sign, don't kill yourself trying to find it. But at least get in those areas and walk them, mm-hmm. so you understand how the terrain rolls and stuff. So once you do finally get to get in there, even if you don't know as much, you know how to get in and out of the place. So you can you can be more efficient on on work in the area in the fall, you know, because I go in a lot of places pretty blind, you know, but if you, if you have a general idea of what you're expecting to walk into, it's, it makes your life so much easier. Well, I think we got to talk about this with you. Now, I know we talked to you about this before, but I think it's worth having a conversation on it, especially being on the topic of like these buck hubs and, and kind of the scouting aspect of it. But the application of like, when it comes to like, what you hold at the highest, uh, like of highest importance of sign when it comes to tracks, scrapes, and rubs. What's at the highest and what's at the lowest totem pole when it comes to you scouting? Out of those three, for me, a lot of it is is actually well. The, the, a lot of the sign you're finding is not really the most important part. It's it's finding the right habitat where that big buck is going to be. Cause he's going to come back to those kind of places, you know, but you're almost not looking for sign. You know, you're, you're finding the sign that's telling you, telling you a lot, but you're really, you gotta, you gotta get inside that deer's head a little bit and really think about how he's going to work that area to survive. You know? So it's, that's, that's a, a big thing. Like once you understand how, how a, a whitetail reacts to certain things, it's going to really improve on what you're looking for. Well, I, and I guess that, that brings up, you know, the aspect of discussing, which is again, gosh, I hate, I don't want to foreshadow, but we'd talk about this in a future episode that comes out in a few weeks. Um, that from, from our perspective down here, like we're me and Andrew hunt a whole bunch. Uh, the area is dominated by logging. So there, mm-hmm. there is no such thing as like cover. Thick cover is not a limiting factor. It's like, it's mm-hmm. number one fact. It's like the biggest um, resource. It's not a limiting resource by any means. But it seems like some of these guys, and maybe you can touch on this, that are hunting more big wood situation, that sometimes that cover can be a more limiting factor that you can key in on more so when you have the right terrain features that like, hey, there's probably going to be does bedded in here and come, especially the rut or in and around the rut, that buck's going to be using this mm-hmm. rhododendron thicket or this you know Mount Laurel thicket or whatever little bit of cover on the side of the hill, side of the ridge as like his path of travel when coming through this area. Yeah, exactly. And I'm looking for, I'm looking for a lot of terrain. You know, you're right on with that. You you know, you're looking for that kind of terrain pieces, you know, like you get, you get some really, like I kill most of my bucks in really rugged places. Mm. And I think a lot of it has to do too, because it's, it's a lot easier to almost read a rugged section. You know, so you can kind of you can kind of pick out pinches where you can get a good shot on something, mm-hmm. you know, because if you're trying to get one with a bow, it's like you've got to get within 30, 40 yards of this thing. You know, you, you really got to pay a lot of attention to areas that you can do that in. You know, like if you're if you're 
hunting a lot of monotonous timber, I would be looking for those little tiny spots that aren't so monotonous. You know, you got to find, you just got to find those little diversity pieces where you're going to find something, you know, because even, even in the most monotonous looking wood, there's certain things about it that you're going to be able to pick up on and different edges and stuff like that, that are going to lead you into something, you know, and it's going to, it's going to have, it's going to bring you into something that's a little different. When you think turkey calls, think of Houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB Hen, some days I might like the Ghost Cut. Some situations I might like the Country Girl Call, you know, that I can cut on really hard where on other situations I might like the all pro that I can get a little bit softer on. Bottom line, there's something for everybody and something for every situation and hey, you can get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls by using the promo code SOP 24. That's SOP 24. Use that promo code. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast. Save space and cut weight with the Sawyer Mini Water Filtration System. This water filter fits in the palm of your hand and has a total field weight of just two ounces. I use this thing all the time. Basically, the way that it works is you get a drinking pouch. So it's literally just a little plastic pouch with a cap on it, like a water bottle cap that you fill up with water, and then you attach the filter to the front of that and squeeze the water through it into, you know, whatever you're holding your water in. Super fast, super easy, super serious filter, filtering out all bacteria, protozoa, and microplastics, so you don't have to worry about salmonella, E. coli, or stuff like Giardia. This saves me a ton of weight, whether I'm doing a long scouting trip or, you know, hunting all day. I get to carry less water with me, taking up less room in my pack, and then when I come to a nice stream, filter out some water, and I'm good to go. Head on over to Sawyer.com to check it out or hit the link in the description of this podcast. Man, Mark's Outdoors is your one-stop shop for everything outdoor and shooting related. They're a family-owned business that's been around for over 40 years now been serving the Birmingham area, but now they have opened their doors to everyone across the United States through their online store. Again, me and Andrew have been using Mark's Outdoors for years now. They have unbelievable supplies of literally anything that we need we can pick up from Mark's Outdoors. They're even carrying different saddle companies, sticks, platforms, the whole nine yards at Mark's Outdoors. And again, if you don't live in Alabama and you don't want to make the drive to Birmingham, you can go over to their website, marksoutdoors.com, and actually shop on their online store to get awesome deals on different products that you may be needing right now and be able to get to you in a very timely manner as well. So give Marks Outdoors a try. We promise you, you'll enjoy them. They have unbelievable customer service and some of the best guys in the industry. It's all about the diversity, all, all about yep. finding that diversity. Now, I want to kind of bring this back to something I mentioned very early on, but we never really discussed it, but it was something that came up at the very beginning of this part two episode that came out on Monday. Um, is dew point. And Shane really kind of brings mm-hmm. up dew point. And the way he was talking about dew point is potentially a factor of at what elevation that deer could, that buck could be traveling at based off the, the humidity in the air. Uh, and also just the, like the dew, the moisture, I guess, where is the best sending conditions? Have you ever thought about that with the dew point or, or what was your take yeah. on him talking about the dew point? Yeah, definitely. I, I see big bucks move a lot more in, in moist conditions. And I think that's why, like, like in the Appalachian mountain chain, this, the, the east, like the, the southern side of those ridges is very dry. I mean, 
those mountains actually you can find cactuses growing at the right elevations on the eastern faces of those things so that that air is it's harder to smell you know that's also a good place for you to be coming in from if you don't because your your scent's not going to last as long Mm -hmm. So if you do have to come in, you can always use those hot, dry faces to come in on sometimes. And then you could and shoot down off the backside. Because once you get off on that, that more shaded section of the mountain, everything is moisture in the air. But it's not just the moisture that's important for his scent. It's important for the vegetation that grows there, too. You know, because... You're, you're living up in the mountains. It's not like there's always water available right all right around the next corner. Sometimes there's several miles and stuff. So if those if those deer are going to be spending more time on that moist side of the mountain, the moisture content in the plants is going to be higher. So and they they can get they can get enough water for eating vegetation to last without actually going to watering holes con- constantly, you know. And that's that's why I think down south you're probably going to have a lot of deer in the moisture in those areas with moisture because it's just hotter down there, so the deer are going to need more water. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I guess if you think about conditions here, we have a we get a ton of south, at least where I'm at. Every other like go to Georgia, I hear different. This is a little bit different, but like where we're at, a lot of early season, all the way and actually until November, a lot of south southeast south southwest winds, uh, which is mm-hmm. you know during especially that early fall is a dry time of the year normally for us. Like right now we're in a rainy season. We get a ton of rain spring and actually the last four or five years, we've had a ton of rain in the summertime too, but come, mm-hmm. you know, especially September right before season comes in, it's like they just turn the water off and it's just starts normally getting yep. pr- pretty dry. Um, so that would make a lot of sense too, especially being on that North side or, you know, Northwest, North, Northeast, but especially Northwest side of, uh, you know, some of these ridge systems holding more moisture, you know, more moisture in the plants, like you said, but also just more moisture in the air. I'd say something that'd be super interesting is to go in some of these areas, especially, I don't know, maybe, you know, look at do this sometime this fall is on one of those days when, you know, it's relatively mild, you know, humidity is to go on the east facing side. And, and mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know what the little, I don't know what the actual utensil is called that reads humidity, but take a humidity reading on the east side of the slope at a certain elevation then go to the west side of the slope or northwest side of the slope and do the exact same thing and see how much of a difference it could potentially be, especially yeah. in the shade. Yeah, well, I could tell you just from hiking it. I mean, you walk on the one side of the hill and you're like, "Woo!" You know, <laughs> you're, you're sweating, sweating bullets, and you're baking in the sun. Mm-hmm. And then you get on that other side and you're like, "Wow, this is." I almost want to put a jacket on. Yeah, it's nice. You know, it, the temperature changes drastic. You know. Yeah, absolutely. That's one thing we noticed in one of these areas where it had a lot of mountain laurel that we scouted. The same area that I think Andrew, you and Andrew kind of had looked at some of the maps together is like that mountain laurel holds so much moisture too up underneath it. Mm-hmm. And when you like when you were above it, like up to the edge of it, you didn't notice it. The second you got inside of it, it was like someone had the air conditioner on. Yeah. Um, and also like there was a nice breeze. Now I can I can imagine if there was absolutely no airflow. Period. I mean, you're still gonna have falling thermals because it's much cooler down there anyways in that moisture content. Um, but, um, you know, it was amazing to kind of see the difference, literally like a 20 yard gap, like, you know, 10 yards above it versus being 10 yards down in it. It was, it felt mm-hmm. completely different, uh, which is, you know, kind of fascinating based off, you know, where we were kind of finding some of that sign too. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, it's thermoregulation, mm-hmm. you know, which you, ther- thermoregulation for the deer. You brought that up during the podcast and actually when I was listening to it. This is on part two, I think. 
I think we just kind of breezed over it because you mentioned it and like we didn't even like acknowledge it for mm-hmm. whatever reason because like, I guess we were on because that's when we were talking about the beds and everything and finding multiple beds in, like around a point and mm-hmm. you brought that about thermoregulation and it makes a lot of sense too like a buck and also a lot of things that you said on my podcast especially part two made a lot of sense on like the, the bedding aspect of like you know buck goes back to one bed until you know sometime early morning mid morning and then he'll kind of ease he keep easing his way back to other beds until he's finally like back in that thick, nasty cover that he's actually laying his antlers down and actually like sleeping. Um, yep. And I mean, I know Shane agreed with you on that, but also like the thermal regulation I found was, was pretty fascinating. So, I mean, can you touch on that and based off like the beds you found and kind of how you've seen some of those bucks kind of shift around based off, I guess, conditions that kind of regulate yeah. their body temperatures. Yeah. I'll, I'll find like, you'll find like, I get a lot of bucks bedding under hemlock trees and stuff. So like you'll find like shade trees where they'll get under hemlock and you'll find beds actually going in a circle around the hemlock tree where they're actually following around the tree to stay in the shade, you know? And then like, you'll, you'll see where they'll, they'll get up and they'll move across the drainage to like sit in the sun and then they'll, they'll get up and they'll browse over here where the, where a couple wildflowers come up or something. And then they'll have another bed and they just, they kind of, they just kind of mill around in a lot of these locations. They're like, oh, I'm, I'm hot. And they walk over here and then they, oh, I feel cold and they'll get up and they'll just kind of move. And they'll just do this all day long. Like I, I've seen like spots where there's, you find 50 beds in an area and they'll, it's just that deer's just up and milling around all day long. It, man, see, after hearing you talk about that and also Shane talk about like what he's physically seen gone in some of his areas and watched some of these bucks do this like from the sand. Mm-hmm. is I've done this. I'm guilty of it. And maybe we can touch on this. It's like, if I'm scouting and I go into an area, I'm like, man, like I, there's like multiple beds all within like a 10 yard area. Like they're, but they're big beds, but they're all right here. I'm like, okay, is this is a bachelor group. Is this an individual bucket? Is this is like a doe group that keeps kind of shifting around. And a lot of times in the past, I've just chalked up as being like a doe group, but now yeah. looking back at it in some of those locations, cause they're not just bedded out in that wide open on a top of a ridge. Like they're very strategic mm-hmm. where you're finding them. Now it makes me think maybe there's one buck, maybe two bucks, but maybe there's one buck just kind of shifting around within a 10 yard area, you know, using different back cover mm-hmm. and different positioning based off the wind or thermal currents or whatever's happening. Yep. He's just shifting around. And, and you will find does in those spots too. So don't be surprised if you have, have does in the area because it is, it, a lot of them are really nice spots, but a lot of the, you find a lot of like lone does and stuff like old does or something, just like an old spooky doe that, kind of doesn't want to get bothered you kind of you'll find her hanging out in those spots where those those bucks will bed you know but i mean once it gets closer to a rut a lot of times i'll just kind of you'll get you'll get a dominant buck in there and he'll just kind of beat everybody up and kick them out mm-hmm. and he'll he'll kind of take over a place but like throughout the season you're gonna get all sorts of different bucks and does using it but it's just when the big buck comes in he's going to be bedding in that area yeah and and Another thing that I've come to realize after talking just to more and more people is the, the the different shifts, and I guess every buck's different, but the different shifts in home ranges um, of some of these deer, where like you might get images of a buck in the summertime, and I'm I'm talking about this from or, you know a recent conversation I've had with some guys, have images of some really nice bucks in the summertime, and then for some reason come you know September October they are just gone. You don't see them again for the rest of the year. You might move cameras around, but for some reason they're gone. Versus other deer, you may have pictures of the summertime, and they don't move more than 100, 200 yards tops, and you still Mm -hmm. keep up with them throughout the whole fall. 
until like you know i mean that's like their core area. of course they're moving outside that area but like you're still catching images of them and it's just kind of interesting the difference of how some bucks will act completely different than others and some are more homebodies versus others even though they might be five six years old or still range out or have a completely different mm-hmm. you know fall range compared to where they've been at you know summering yep and the thing though with those deer like you get those you get those deer to kind of want to live in one area and then you'll get those those deer that want to have multiple cores like you'll have a buck that like oh i'm, I'm gonna move and move up into the mountains during the hunting season and hide but all summer long i'm gonna be down three four miles away in ag or something like that mm-hmm. or i'm gonna get up and move all the way over there but then once pressure picks up i'm gonna actually pick up and get off the private property and get way up in the mountains where nobody can bother me mm-hmm. you know and that you Every deer has a different personality and they just kind of figure out a way to survive in that, you know, but there's, there's so many different options on what these deer can do. But one thing that's consistent is when they're in daylight, they're all doing the same thing. They're sitting in a small area and they're not moving, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's once you, once you locate these, these locations and I, I think all the deer kind of know where they are, you know, over time. So like you'll get multiple big bucks that are completely different just randomly show up in one of these spots throughout the year and he'll just like kind of hang out and chill there for a couple days and then he'll get up and go off and do his next next kind of thing where he wants to go Mm -hmm. well paul i want to get over uh on a side note i think we've kind of you know really talked about some of these different topics which are interesting again there's gonna be a part three and i'm sure there's gonna be a part four i don't know we had one guy one guy on the part one episode, he's like, I hope this is a five part series. It's not more. So we'll, we'll see how everything breaks out for it. And there's a ton to talk about. I think Andrew was talking about, man, he's like, you could do 10 episodes on these, on these topics, especially about like what Shane's found and kind of breaking stuff down in more detail. But on a side note, you just got a pretty sweet little saddle, get little saddle system that came in that you just did a little video and posted on the running gun page, which by the way, I gotta say this guys, if you're listening to this podcast, and you're not on our Facebook group called the running gun, whitetail hunters, you're missing out. But, uh, Paul, you made a post on there, uh, and I think it's, uh, I mean, talk about the system cause it, it was pretty interesting about the minimalist style of, uh, this rigging and kind of how it can be applied to not only just, you know, quote, you know, saddle hunting, but also how you could implement it with a, a tree stand setup too. Yeah. That's the dryad. And that's the, uh, the dryad, the kill, kill deer harness, which is just a rock climbing harness. And then they have the the hammock seats that are basically replacing a, a tree saddle seat, which they're so sweet. It's made out of super light nylon material and it packs down to like a little like tennis ball size piece. And then the, the harness doesn't weigh nothing. And it can, tr- you can wear the harness for hunting with the tree stand or using it saddle style with the little, the little, the little, uh, hammock piece so it's perfect it, it's one of the only things i've ever seen where you can go back and forth in different styles of hunting and stuff with the same piece of gear which is really nice and it's super minimal super lightweight and uh, i really like it i'm like i'm super stoked to be using this thing right now yeah uh, well you made awesome you made a post on actually i think you might put it in a group message first when you, when you got in messing with it. i'm like okay that's pretty pretty slick Especially like just mm-hmm. the minimal aspect of it, but also then you made the uh, the post on the running gun page where you kind of like you're kind of showing how you got it set up and everything and how you're implementing it. Which, by the way, I think 
I don't know how often you get guys asking you about your platform you use that custom built platform you made uh, with, yeah. the, with, with the knee bar on there, but it's pretty pretty slick. Um, but it, it looks it looks pretty sweet. Like I'm not gonna lie, it looks pretty sweet because I think it's mm-hmm. the uh, I remember they had like the drag came out with their mint their their full size. I think it's called the Dre. Is that right? Yeah, uh, like, and this I think they're they're calling this the Dre Mini. Okay, right yeah, now I don't know if they're gonna keep calling that or they're going to change the name, but I think it's going to probably get stuck to mini because everybody knows it is that by now. So, well, it, it seems like it's fitting. Cause yeah, it, it seems like just from your photos and everything, it's just, uh, it's not as large and like kind of like all encompassing, uh, like the hammock, yep. s- the hammock seat part of it as the original design. Um, yeah. It, it's exactly like a true saddle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The dimensions now it, it fits like the, when you sit in it, it feels like a tree saddle, but it's, it's a lot more comfortable. You don't get these pinch points in it like you do with a traditional tree saddle because there's no hard webbing that's compressing against your hips or anything when you're sitting in this thing. Yeah. And that, I think it's a nice parachute material. Yeah. You were telling me that, I guess you can see that in the video too. Um, Cause like you're not, the weight's not in the harness, the weights like you're attached with the harness to your tether, but what's mm-hmm. all the weights being distributed on that, that hammock style seating. Um, yep. so pretty much like your, your, your harness itself is pretty much slack. I mean, you, you like, you don't have like, a uh, all, all that, how, how am I putting it? I'm going to botch this here. You have a little bit of slack in the actual harness when you're sitting in the hammock seat, uh, yep. which is nice. And the thing is like, if you were to like slip for whatever reason or had a failure with the, the parachute, you're still attached there and you wouldn't fall more than two yep. inches. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I was testing that because like, I was like, what happens if I get up and move? Mm-hmm. And I go to lean around the tree and this thing slides down on me. But because you're running, it's not like you're running a big slack section on it. Mm-hmm. So it's just enough to, to distribute the weight, the weight onto the hammock. So when you when you get up and move, if it does fall fall off of you in an event like you're swinging around the tree or something, the harness just takes up the weight and you could just keep going. And you're just kind of leaning against the harness. So it doesn't even affect anything. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Like, yeah, it's so nice. You could you could take it and you could flip it up and like put it behind your shoulders and kind of lean with it like that and put the, some weight to the harness if you're standing, and like you could sit it down. You could throw it up, pull pull it up just enough to kind of give you some back support if you wanted to do that. Like it's it's really comfortable. I sat in it for like two or three hours the other day, just when I was actually posting the uh, the stuff on Facebook. I was sitting in it doing that. Yeah, we'll so. see. We'll see. I'm a I'm a gear junkie. Anyone that's been a long time listening to podcasts knows I'm a, I'm a gear junkie. And uh, you know, like the last, especially this past year, you know, we used uh, saddle lock on, uh, hang, like hang on stands and climbers throughout the season, all at, for mm-hmm. different different habitat types and different areas. Like because some places that we hunt, like uh, you know, like a lock on might be like a, a great freaking option. Or, you know, go in with a saddle and then other places is like we're on a gun hunt. I'm hunting a, you know, a cutover that's six feet tall. And I need to get like yeah. seriously, like no, no joke, like seriously, 35 to 40 feet up a tree while I'm taking uh, the climber and just climbing up a pine tree because yeah. there's no limbs on it. Um, so it's like kind of being versatile. But like with with that, with this system you're talking about running for this fall, are you going to be uh, hiking in with the harness, you think? Or you think you're just going to throw it in your, your, your little bag or whatever? Yeah, I think just a little, the r- little rock climbing harness portion, I'm probably just going to wear it in when I'm hiking because it weighs like a couple ounces. It's not really like it's heavy or anything, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I don't have the, because when you use it with the hammock, you don't want to have any bags or ropes on the harness itself. Mm-hmm. So I have everything 
separate from that and I just keep it in a small fanny pack. And then that just stays all my, my kit goes in that, you know? So yeah, it's, it's super light. You don't even know it's on. I'm so big on the hybrid stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. because like, like, like you're saying, you you got all these different things for all these different scenarios where in reality, it's like either use a big platform or like a smaller lock on tree stand mm-hmm. and something like this, you can, you can sit in a, in a, like a, like a lone wolf point five or something like that. You could sit in it and use it like a tree saddle platform, you know, with this system. And if you wanted to sit down, you just flip it down and then you're still getting all the safety features out of a rock climbing harness when you're sitting in a tree stand because the tree saddles really aren't made to be slap on like a lot of people are kind of pushing towards yeah absolutely so it's it's a it's a safer option because it, it's it is a actual rock climbing harness yeah. you know design and that's so I don't, I don't know what andrew's talked about he's used like his saddle before as like a safety harness and i had I, mm-hmm. I tried one time i didn't like it because like no matter how tight i got the uh the bridge to get down like there was still you know play you know six inches left and right and mm-hmm. uh you know, anyways, long story short, I just started using my old, like if I was, if I'm going in specifically using, you know, my climber or I was going to use a, a, a lock on it, like a small, like little hang on stand, I'm just going to use my old harness, which is fine. I'm used yep. to use it full body harness, but like, that's pretty sweet too. Because one thing I saw, cause I guess it's Cody DeQuisto. I know he uses, um, like the rock climbing harness style and a lot of other guys with a lock on yeah. and it's like, you kind of had that tether set. Like when you're sitting down, it's almost like at your lower back level, if not maybe a little bit higher, and you yep. just have enough slack that you can kind of pivot, you know, back to your left, looking behind the tree and to your right, and uh, you don't have all this slack up behind you. So I guess shooting a bow specifically, yep. not having that tag in kind of up behind you, you know, is a big yep. benefit. Yeah, because it's coming out of it's coming out of like your center on the front. So and I I always I wrap that rope for the rock climb harness around my strong side and then up on the side of the tree. And I have it, I have it hooked on kind of facing off to my right shoulder because I'm right. I'm uh, right-handed, mm-hmm. you know? So when I get up to shoot my bow, I can shoot to my left from sitting and I have my full range of motion. And then if you've got to turn right and shoot to your right, you're unwinding the tension on, on the rock climbing harness as you do it. Yeah, absolutely. Which is so, super, super, super simple. It sounds complicated, but it's really easy. No, nah, it's, it's super easy. And if you fall, you know, if you fall, you spin around and you face the tree. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to get this issue. Like if you fall out of a regular harness and you're dangling there and you can't get back to your tree, you know, that's it. Rock climbing harness is really safe for that. You know, you're always going to, you're going to be right back on your tree. Yeah, absolutely. And like whether you're using sticks or whatever, it's right there in front of you. Um, And if it's adjusted right, you're only going to fall a couple inches. Yep. Also, one thing I liked about it, I'm I'm probably going to buy one of those uh, harnesses, uh, the the kill deer, just for the aspect of like using with like my like small stand setups. Uh, because mm-hmm. I, I like that so much easier than having to go in with a full body harness. Because my thing is, I never wear, or sometimes I wear the full body harness from the truck going in, but it's got so much metal. It's, it's got, mine's got uh, it's an old uh, hundred fifty system harness because you know got metal actually like clips that go together for your legs and also yep. for, for the, uh, the stomach piece and uh, or like your sternum belt. And it's like I've I've had it. I probably ought to tape it up. I'll be one hundred percent honest, but I've had it. You know 
ding something when it when it shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And uh, at least that kill deer, like those little like small rock climbing harnesses like that. You know, having something that's super simple that you can either wear or throw it in your bag. Yeah, it's not taking well, you up you much can space. Stuff it in your pocket. That's or, how small it is. Well, yeah, there you go. But, I was gonna say wearing cargo pants, whatever. You're a hiking pants. Yeah, or your you guide can pants. Stuff it in, stuff it in your hip pocket. Yep. And see, again, that would be super, super, super easy to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, um, yeah, just just the safety aspect. Yeah. I, I just like it. And and you could take off the leg straps on these things. And just use the lineman's belt and hang cameras in the summer. Mm, there you go. So if you're if you're putting cameras that are up 15 feet in the air, 12, 15 feet in the air, you know, with a, a step, you could just wear that harness with just the belt and then the lineman belt around the around the tree. And now you can work with both hands while you're hanging these cameras and trying to get these things angled and stuff instead of trying to hold out one hand and hoping they don't fall out of the tree. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, hey, Paul, um, I, we're actually at, at time here. I got to uh, kind of wrap us up. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of, you know, mention to the listeners, you know, if they've been enjoying some of these podcasts that we've been doing recently, especially the ones with you and Shane on there, uh, you know, like we said in the last couple of weeks episodes, you know, you know, write in guys, you know, shoot us a message on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, of course, you can shoot a message directly to Paul, too. I know he, he's on Facebook. Paul, are you on Instagram at all? Uh, no. Okay. So, so no. you can hit Paul up on Facebook then. And I know Shane's both on uh, Facebook and Instagram, Shane Parker. Um, but you know, shoot us some questions, guys, like some of those things that you'd like to see us maybe discuss, especially when it comes to like some of Shane's details of information from, uh, this trail camera study. Cause there's a lot we have not discussed yet. And a lot of things y'all been putting in this group message that we've had going on this text thread. That's, I mean, pretty, pretty ridiculous. I'll be honest. I mean, it's not ridiculous. It's, it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. that I think we're going to get into a little bit later on sometime this summer. Um, but, you know, definitely let us know, guys, you know, if there's anything else that you kind of want to hear from these topics. But I'll say this. Uh, some of you guys out there that uh, we had one guy leave us a review, which I, I, I'm using my phone right now, Paul, with you on here FaceTime, so I can't really look at the reviews necessarily to read off for this week, but we'll do it for next week's episode. Uh, I know one guy put on there. Uh, he's thoroughly been enjoying the podcast, but he wants to know when we're going to get some uh, Flatland Killers back on the show. And just to let you know, guys, we've got some awesome ones coming out for you uh, later in, uh, especially June and uh, going in July. I uh, got a lot of great guys. We're working on getting the podcast for you guys. Uh, so don't worry if you're a Flatlander out there, uh, mm-hmm. and you know don't don't worry. We're, we we got some stuff coming out for you guys. So stay very well informed and in tune to the show because uh, you won't want to miss those episodes that are going to be coming out uh, very soon. So, uh, Paul, you got any final things before we kind of wrap it up here? No, I'm. Good with that. Awesome. Awesome, brother. Yeah. Nice and short and sweet, man. We ain't, we ain't got to be here for three hours, you know, like a normal podcast, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I appreciate you coming on, brother, sharing some uh, sharing some information with us and kind of hopping on for this outro. And guys, if you enjoy the podcast, like always, go leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We greatly appreciate that. And then, uh, of course, check us out on Facebook and Instagram at the Southern Outdoorsman. And hey, if you're not part of of the largest mobile hunting community on social media, which is the Running Gun Whitetail Hunters group. Over 88,000 members on there. Go check it out. Go join that on Facebook. And uh, guys, we'll catch you back here on this coming Monday's episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast a show where we sit down with outdoorsmen of the Ozark Mountains region to talk all things hunting and fishing. 
Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts on everything from bear hunting, to fishing for smallmouth and trout, and discussing big questions like what happened to all the quail in the southeast. If you're enjoying this show, then I know you'll enjoy the Ozark Podcast. You can listen to the show on all podcasting platforms and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.